were doing committees in California about reparations for a state that never had slavery and no one in the state of California has ever owned a slave. It makes no sense. It's like if you're if you're an immigrant from Asia and you've moved to, to California and you've worked your ass off to, to have whatever. And now the state is saying, oh, by the way, you coming from some really hard circumstance and, and you've kind of done everything in your life right and you've paid taxes and you've done all this stuff. By the way, you need to go pay um, reparations for something that happened, uh, you know, 150 plus years ago. And uh, the state didn't even have any slaves. That is just so stupid. Like, they, 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 it's like housing is the problem. Solve housing. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com to get started. Last couple weeks in Miami, and then I go to uh, New York for June. And um, yeah, I'm going to play it by ear. Are you still planning to move to SF? Yeah, yeah. I'm planning to move to SF, but I'm open as to timeline. Cerebral Valley is really calling you. <laughs> yes. Or is it the open air drug markets? I, I'm never quite sure with you, Eric, what, what you're yeah. uh, you're looking for. Maybe yeah, a little exactly. bit of both. Exactly. Yeah. Why not both? As the as the meme uh, as the meme says. Yeah. I I, I messaged Antonio in, in the chat, but he's moving today. Uh, he seems to be moving all the time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, ever since he fully converted, he's been even more finicky and uh, neurotic. I'm just kidding. You're allowed to say that. I, I can't say any of that kind of stuff. I mean, he's still in the Latinx tribe, so we, we yeah, can exactly. kind of play those jokes across the board. Yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm not part of the that tribe. Yeah. Twitter new CEO kind of came out of nowhere. Seems like it's it's confirmed. It's this woman who worked at NBC previously. What, what do we know about this new Twitter CEO? And, um, and let's talk about it. So I only know what I read on the internet. Um, so it sounds like she's from NBC Universal, hard charging. They call her the Velvet Hammer, I think is her <laughs> nickname, which is that's kind of a badass nickname. Um, I actually have a friend who worked at NBC Universal doing like ad sales for television. And I, I'm going to see her in a couple of weeks when we're on the East Coast. So I'm, I'm kind of excited to, to kind of maybe hear some of the stories. But I don't know. To me, it just seems reasonable. Like the advertisers have gone away and you need to bring those people back. This woman uh, has deep relationships with these people. I think there was one anecdote that was whoever was running the PR for this. Uh, and, you know, Elon's probably not doing that. But her PR people were very good because the stories were all, I think, um, quite complimentary of, of her relationships and, and how she's a relationship oriented executive in that during COVID, she let people out of their ad contracts and, and 
you know, when people were freaking out and I think people didn't forget that. So I would imagine it's going to be good for their ad business. Um, if you remember like, uh, Twitter's original COO, Adam Bain, who's a friend, what came from, I think Fox and, and had been in that world. And, and so I think Twitter's original model, because they didn't monetize as well as Facebook, and, and we're going to get a text from Shriram afterwards telling us like, <laughs> that you don't understand, but my, my very simplistic view of the world and we're now talking about ads, by the way, and Antonio's skipping the, the, <laughs> yeah. the podcast. But Twitter has just never been able to monetize at the same level as Facebook for a variety of reasons, whether it's tech or just how people use the product. Twitter has like kind of this like equivalent to television where it's like a brand advertising thing rather than kind of a little bit more like app install or intent based, like if you think about Google. Um, so you naturally want people who who have those types of relationships. Actually surprised I remember as much from this like one or two articles I read the she was actually supposed to be at NBC's ad summit and she she had to step back because she's now taking this job. But apparently they do this kind of one event a year or every couple of years and they sell hundred billion dollars worth of ads, um, which is kind of interesting to think about. Like, when was the last time you watched network television? Uh, I can't even remember. Well, you if you watch any live sports, you're you're watching network. But 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 like what's amazing to me is the the resiliency of of these kind of like major networks. And, and obviously there are cable channels and stuff like that to still be a place that advertisers want to buy. And, and a lot of that's actually driven off of like the few live events that people watch today, most of which are, are sports, right? Like the Oscars and Grammys, they, ha they have way less engagement than they did historically. Th th that's still a really, really lucrative market. Obviously the NFL benefits from that and, and NBA because uh, they can sell the ad slots to those networks. But getting back to this, this um, new CEO, she, what's interesting about this is she basically is just going to run the business side of things. She's giving product and, and kind of design and, and sysops as, uh, as Elon said, uh, to Elon. And if you actually think about it, he, he, he's already shown that he can work pretty well in this model. And a little bit of perspective is my wife used to work at SpaceX. Gwen Shotwell has effectively been running SpaceX for, you know, last 10 years or so. And Elon, I think, moves to the highest uh, kind of like critical path item in any one of these companies. But the the reality is like the kind of like sales of those rocket launches, Elon, Elon's not doing those sales at this point. He, he's focused on Starship or, or kind of whatever the next milestone to get to Mars. And Gwen is responsible for building the organization that actually goes and sells the satellite providers or, you know, kind of like implements how, how Starlink is actually now global and all that kind of stuff. So he, he I think, does a nice job on that yin and yang. And, and by the way, this is how Steve Jobs worked with Tim Cook, right? Like Steve Jobs doesn't care about logistics and like the machine that Apple has built. Tim Cook was kind of that, that uh, nice compliment to Steve Jobs who could just float on whatever he thought was the most important thing. So this model actually works in high-performing, high-innovation technology companies. And I think my favorite part of this is... You have this whole group of progressive folks who rocket man bad because uh, he has the wrong opinions or, you know, he's petty. All the things that, you know, you can, I think, make some legitimate criticisms of how Elon behaves publicly. But he now has, if you, if you just think about it, two of maybe call it five or 10 most valuable private companies. And you could say, yes, Twitter has, has come down in value. But the reality is it's still, it's still a valuable thing and it's private. Two of the 10 most valuable private companies, and they're run by women, 
extremely competent women who are, you know, not like some DEI hire type thing, but like, no, they've proven themselves from a career and being excellent. And Elon, they work, they work with Elon. And so if you can kind of take all these other woke kind of companies all run by men and like not, and, and so, so I, I think it's just like an amazing, um, kind of like the, the, you know, the, the guy in the red suit meme where he has to pick the button and he's sweating yeah, yeah. and it's like, <laughs> it's like pra praise Elon because he actually is, is moving the world forward with extremely competent women just based on their competence, not their gender yeah. or like, you know, extremely woke progressive politics where it's like mood affiliation. Yeah. And, and so I, I, I just, it just like tickles me funny in the sense that, um, you, you just like have these head, head explode for people. Well, what was the inflection point as to when Elon started getting really coded as right wing? Or maybe there were a few inflection points where it like really ramped up. Remember a few years ago when he, um, you know, the message received to the California politician who, you know, sort of threatened him um, in terms of more taxation. Or I can't remember. Like, I feel like that might have been one moment. Like, because a few years ago, he was more neutral, right? Like, what were the inflection points as to when he increasingly got coded right wing or coded even like treated it as, as we treat Trump? Yeah, look, I, I don't have like a, a really scientific analysis. I, I do have two data points for you or two, two uh, kind of thoughts. So the first is massive increase in wealth during COVID. And that's a combination of the zero interest rate stimul stimulus related stuff. Um, and, and what's interesting is, I think, a lot of people don't appreciate Elon had a very special deal when Tesla was kind of going almost bankrupt. I thought it was 2018 or so. He he got this insane comp package where if he hit stock based uh, price milestones, he he got more and more of the company. And with the run up, it it made him that much wealthier, which kind of I think created this this meme around Tesla, right? Like the the big Tesla bears. Um, and, and there's some truth to this is that Tesla's way overvalued relative to the progress they've made yet. Like if you actually just look at the progress for electric cars, like Tesla is like, I think 50% of the market in the U S or something like that. So, so you got really, really wealthy, right? He passed Jeff Bezos. And then I think that the other thing, and I think someone shared this is the number of tweets per year from Elon is like a hockey stick growth. So I think he's kind of bored in COVID. This is my, my theory, bored in COVID breaks up with Grimes or whatever. Like, so she's just like spending more and more time on, on Twitter. And so that I think becomes this kind of uh, self-fulfilling prophecy where, look, if you spend more time on Twitter and, and you've got so many followers, right. And I think he went from something like 80 million followers to 120 million. He might even be higher now. And so it, it kind of like becomes this thing where Twitter starts to, to own you. I mean, it's like one of our favorite topics on this show is just to talk about like Twitter, Twitter is upstream brain. of everything. Everything is downstream of Twitter. Twitter is the is the arena. But I think like when your brain is on Twitter and you have 120 million followers, like and you're the richest person in the world, you start to kind of maybe like everyone talks about FU money. It's like, OK, now I'm, I'm at the point of, of doing that. And I think as a result, in that kind of climate where people are talking about wealth taxes and all this other, you know, like, you know, eat, eat the rich billionaire type stuff. He became kind of this, this poster child for like, okay, this is, this person shouldn't have this much money because he's not responsible or he's to use the SBF term, the woke shibboleths that <laughs> yeah. we, uh, that we say. So he, he's not kind of like playing into the, the kind of elite, like he, he's, he's deviating. And I think, if anything, he's 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 doubling down on the fact that 
he, you know, his fanboys are on, on Twitter are, are kind of not in that, in that group. And so now I, I think it's only become a self-perpetuating cycle. And, and what's interesting, and I, and I think that this is something that he has to really be careful about, like for Twitter, is Twitter, I think, has definitely taken a little bit more of a, a right-leaning move since his acquisition. And part of that is this subscriber thing, which I actually think is good because he's created so much of a kind of like rocket man, bad issue. He's not at least my observation. There aren't that many uh, kind of left of center people using Twitter subscriptions because just like the blue check has become this kind of like, you know, alt-right symbol of basically for, for a certain set of people. And I'm, I'm kidding there. It's, it's not an alt-right symbol, but, um, I think what he's going to have a challenge with is if all of the people who are using subscribe, like the, you know, the, the pink super follow type thing are right of center or, or, you know, whatever that political affiliation, he, he he's actually going to create a perpetuating cycle. And so going back to the CEO, I, I think what's great about that is that it seems like, you know, there's a bunch of tweets like this where basically it's like the left seems to be as pissed about her as the right. And that's actually probably what you want is someone who feels neutral and not coded one way or another, because Elon's always going to kind of do what he wants to do. And so I'm still extremely bullish on Twitter under Elon, just given that the thing I think people underrate is how slow big companies usually just move. And, and Twitter was like on the 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 very slow end of, of big companies. And I think he's just reinvigorating it in a way that is much more iterative, willing to try things and fail and liveness from like a company standpoint in terms of product and, and uh, iteration is, is dramatically underrated. And, and obviously he does that with SpaceX. It's a little harder to do with Tesla kind of like you're, you're even starting to see it with Google, right? Like Google now has this existential threat with open AI plus Microsoft and there are a whole bunch of stories that have come out where they basically said that like Sundar is just saying like, nope, okay, put those alignment people's align, you know, alignment, AI alignment people like Google are a zero interest rate phenomenon. Like, it's just like, okay, like we can be fat and lazy and like, you know, talk about the ethics of this stuff. And the reality is Google, Google's business is under threat and they need to show that they actually have supremacy in, in AI stuff. And, and so they did their first attempt at it in kind of like a half-assed way and they got eviscerated, the, the stock went down. And then this week, Google I.O., I think was generally pretty well received. It had, you know, $150 billion or some insane amount. They're you know, $1.3 trillion company. So it's, it's hard to move that needle, but but the market rewarded them for kind of looking like they were being more aggressive. And that's interesting because like, w when was the last time you thought of Google as being like fast and aggressive? And so I, I, I do think it's a combination of the the macroeconomic environment with like okay money is getting more expensive and i do think elon expanded the overton window around like oh twitter still works right like everyone thought that twitter was like two weeks away from falling apart and it's like still works there it looks like they're making progress maybe bumbling along on, on sideways but the reality is they took out 80 percent of the cost and i think zuck is a great example of this where a founder-led company He's making, you know, kind of like that observation and then saying, wait a second, like we need to get lean too." you know, you have the Brad Gerstners of the world who think that their letter is the reason. But the reality is like Zuck is founder controlled company. That's those super voting shares work. And so now you're in a situation where I think 
every one of these big companies. I, we're in an, an environment before would have been a layoff shows a sign of weakness. Now it's actually seen as a sign of vitality and strength, which worth pointing out is like when you have tens of thousands of people losing jobs, like that's not like something to be celebrated. But I do think it is it is getting Silicon Valley back into a much more uh, reality focused world of like, okay, the stock market wants to see real cash flow and not spending money on kind of fantasy projects as much as like you, you need to actually be able to go tell a good story. And so, but, but that all goes back to Elon, right? Like Elon is the kind of upstream of everyone, both in Twitter, but also like making these decisions at, at Twitter, I think has, has, has flowed down into uh, these other companies. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. I want to tell you about my new interview show, Upstream. Upstream is where I go deeper with some of the world's most interesting thinkers to map the constellation of ideas that matter. On the first season of Upstream, you'll hear from Mark Andreessen, David Sachs, Balaji, Ezra Klein, Joe Lonsdale, and more. Make sure to subscribe and check out the first episode with Mark Andreessen. The link is in the description. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. Hiring is hard, and the time it takes for founders could be better leveraged elsewhere. Marketer Hire pre-vets top-notch marketers across a dozen roles, whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy. It's free to use and you only pay if you end up hiring someone. If you want to hire a great marketer the easy way, Marketer Hire is offering Moment of Zen listeners a $1,000 credit for first-time customers. Go to marketerhire.com slash MOZ and use code MOZ for your $1,000 credit. There's a few things I want to respond to there. First is the, the Elon sentiment idea. It, it, it's fascinating because some people respond. There are two different ways to respond to kind of journalists attacking you. Uh, and... You know, you, like Zuckerberg, uh, you know, in the sort of Trump era, you know, Cambridge Analytica era, like the Facebook approach was to apologize, uh, apologize, say we'll do better. You know, we acknowledge the harm, you know, even reluctantly, the uh, biology approach <laughs> and the approach that Elon took is to triple down. Um, and you, you started to see Elon, part for the, partly for the reasons you mentioned, he started getting a lot richer, uh, start to get attacked. What they thought would happen was that he would back down, he would apologize, and he would acquiesce more. But in, what, what ended up happening is he started to see uh, the media as an enemy. Remember, he posted about like a Yelp for journalists, right? Like, and he's always, you know, not gotten the credit he deserved for the environmental impact he's had. Like, he is a first principles thinker, and so he started to realize the cracks in the stories. And once you realize a crack in a few stories, you start to question a lot more things. And so if you notice. He's been questioning things that happened many years ago, like the the Michael Brown, uh, you know, verdict in Ferguson, or the the uh, crime statistics or police statistics that led to the um, you know uh, June twenty twenty. Um, like in the past year, he started to question a lot of the things that maybe he wasn't questioning recently, and that was, in my opinion, um, sort of uh, energized by the the attacks on him that started to sort of change his his view from a moderate liberal liberal uh or sort of left-leaning to more um you know right-wing coded in terms of at least tribe maybe not ideas you know he's a free market uh, he's a 
you know, probably uh, for social freedoms as well. Um, so he's, he's freedom oriented in nature, um, or, or liberal oriented in nature. But I think he realizes that there's one party that's, that's attacking him. And that party is all the, has all the power, um, or has a lot of power, institutional power. And that's why he's acted accordingly, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's, look, easy to be an armchair and criticize the strategy. But like the one one thing I think about is, should he be dialed if, if you kind of like a spectrum of like, plus 10, right wing, plus 10, left wing, and zero is the, you know, the the kind of middle there? Should he be clicking uh, uh, as close to zero one way or another, but like, for the benefit of actually the goals that he wants to achieve? And maybe one of the goals that he wants to achieve is actually, you know, polling society in a certain political direction, which is fine. That that's his prerogative to go do that. But if I view it as like if if he's if he's really saying, hey, getting humans to interplanetary, you know, multiplanetary species and you know, sustainable energy future, I think a kind of slightly more, at least publicly, uh diplomatic and left-leaning Elon um might might actually be able to achieve his goal because I think it becomes someone to rally behind. And I think the one the one downside, you know, again, free to he's free to share whatever opinions he wants. Like that, it's that's uh, a core fundamental right of of being an American. But I think um, from a strategy standpoint, I, I I look at someone like Sam Altman, who he has a very singular goal, right? And I think he is he's he's very good at being diplomatic uh, to to the right degree. And and I actually don't know what his personal politics are even if you know you might hear from people here or there they 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 are a little bit more um acceptable within the kind of elite structure which i actually think plays well right you know he's getting invited to the white house for the ai stuff like he's having the ability to shape that and so it, it's interesting because obviously teal is another example of someone who's just been very focused on like okay this is my public set of beliefs and i am actually going to try to uh effectuate my set set of policies in a very open way but look at the teal version of like taking down gawker like that to me is like okay that's like master level stuff <laughs> in the sense that he had a 10-year plan and, and he was yeah. able to go do it and that was quiet and, and maybe post that he was never going to be able to do that again but um and and look he got a senate candidate in so so with jd vance and and the trump thing i think I'd say net positive for him within the circles that he cares about, but I think probably very net negative in the sense that like his, his brand kind of went from this, this eccentric investor type to kind of uh, basically the next version of the Cokes is, is Teal, right? Like Teal backed is the thing now, which has its own coded, coded stuff. And so I, I do wonder of like, what is the optimal strategy? If you tell me that get humans to being interplanetary species in a sustainable energy future are, are like your two top priorities. What is the, what is the right at least public persona to to play with? I I always feel fraudulent when I'm criticizing someone who's like very much in the arena in the sense that not only you know the rockets and the and the the electric cars, but he he's also running the arena itself. And so I I, I just I don't know. It's it's a fun thing to muse about in the sense that like what what would be the kind of like dial you would you would change assuming you were in his position? So I agree with you that Sam is is very strategic and is. You know, having a lot of success. Um, I also think that if Elon had created OpenAI with the speech restrictions or kind of political coding that ChatGPT has, he would not be happy with that. Um, hence, why he's wanting to create a competitor. Um, to and so it's like, could Sam 
have created ChatGPT that was like politically neutral? Maybe yes, maybe no. I, I don't know. But I, it seems that one of Elon's goals is also to have a um, to introduce free speech or to introduce the marketplace of ideas or whatever. like he seems to care about the state of public discourse. Certainly, he's seen how it affects his companies um, uh, or the the sort of speech restrictions or sort of you know excessive activism. So he's I think he sees it on attack. Uh, he sees it as a tax on on growth um, and on technology technological progress. I think he sees it as related, but I also agree that he's too interested in truth for his own good. Like the idea of getting into crime statistics or the Michael Brown thing or other thing or the Pelosi thing or whatever, like it, it doesn't help him. Even, even if he might be right on any of those individual things, I don't see how it's advancing his goals. Yeah. And, and maybe one of his goals again is, is he wants the world to have a slightly different political persuasion. And so that, that, well, I, I think it's goal. less. I think it's less about political persuasion. I think he is very interested in truth, right? He's he's interested in in sort of the like. Are, are you are you uh, cynical on that? Or like, do you do you how do you measure truth? It's it's almost like an effective altruism version of the like. <laughs> it's like, oh, I've increased net truth in the world. My personal view is, yeah, that's probably a good thing. Like, if 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 and again, hard to measure. It's like who decides, but but if you just had a magic way of 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 kind of. Like, can you increase truth? Yes or no? I, I think more truth in the world is is probably a good thing. The the way I think about it though is like going back to the the ChatGPT example. So personal view, I don't think there should be any political. I, I think they're completely uncensored. Like we 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 live in a society of adults and we have a constitution. Like we we should have a full marketplace of ideas and 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 that's the case. However, put yourself in the position of of OpenAI. You're out in front, and you know this thing as you get it more sophisticated is naturally going to attract the attention of policymakers. If you had to pick just simple strategy, do you code it more left acceptable and have the right be a little bit pissed at you? Or do you code it right and then have the left be pissed at you? You, you code it left. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's the, that's the optimal move, the chess move. And so whether I agree with that or not, I can also you know, game respect, like in the, like, okay, yeah. like that, that is, that is the right move. If you are trying to make progress towards AGI, which if you, if you actually think about like what they are really trying to get to is like, yeah, ChatGPT 4 is amazing, but like AGI is going to be really crazy, right? Like it's not going to just be Twitter thread boys being like, look at these 10 cool <laughs> things that I did with ChatGPT 4. It's just like, it, it fundamentally changes the way humanity works, right? It's like singularity level stuff. So I think that's actually the definition of the singularity. So, so I think um, I I just find it interesting to kind of think of like, okay, what is the optimal move, assuming a goal? And I think the the counter to that is sometimes maybe there are unstate, non-publicly stated goals, right? So if I just take Elon on face value, I think his strategy is suboptimal relative to what what he's trying to achieve. But easy for me to say, I haven't built reusable rockets and mainstream electric cars. For the audience who's asking, hey, how is ChatGPT politically coded? Just some examples. If you say things like, um, you know, say a joke about Muhammad, it won't let you do that. But if you say, say a joke about Jesus, it will let you do it. Or if you say something, you know, nice about Trump, it will, you know, say it won't, it won't do that. But if you say, say something nice about Biden, it will do that. Or, or some variation, they're treated differently. But and there's like dozens of examples. If you ask about crime statistics, it won't weigh in. If you ask about attractiveness, it won't weigh in. There, there are dozens of examples where it's been, uh, if not hundreds, where it's been sort of um, you know, designed to uh, say a more politically correct 
uh, response and kind of deny or not, or not reveal what reality is. Well, well, what was the Microsoft chatbot? Taylor? Uh, yeah, Tay-Tay or something. Tay, uh, but, but, but this is a few years ago or whatever. Yeah. Like, just look at what happened. The media is just going to immediately look for the, the, like, if you can get ChatGPT say something nice about Nazis, you get a ton of clicks. So the, again, separating my own personal, like how, how do I think the world should be versus like, what is the optimal strategy? You don't want ChatGPT praising Nazis or anything like that the media, it can turn it into a story. And so it is far better from a, just trying to make progress and, 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 and avoid regulatory oversight uh, that is, you know, kind of hampering said progress. If basically the, the stories are from the New York Post and Fox News versus the New York Times and the Washington Post. I am sympathetic. There's this broader critique that the Eliezer's or, or people like that will make uh, where they'll say, hey, stop worrying about AI ethics, like on either side, like forget that it's not left enough or forget that it's too left because what really matters is like if we get AGI, that's like a threat to to humans and their like political leanings is is going to be the last thing that we're concerned about. So I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic to that argument to the extent that, that there's a possibility of that on some you know multi-decade timeline. At, at the same time, like, you know, it is important what, you know, who's in charge of that, what that is used for, you know, how, how is it coded? And so it's it's less that the individual speech restrictions on their own are so egregious. And it's more, is it a harbinger of what's to come in terms of the the ability to to control this thing and influence this thing in 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 one direction? And if it's one direction, you know, it can become a bit authoritarian on either side. I, I think if you just take the total number of GPUs in existence and the the ability to manufacture those GPUs, and you kind of just extrapolate out that each of these models, at least in the current form of how they get better, is you just throw more compute and a bigger data set. And, and there's actually a really good interview uh, Patrick Collison did of Sam Altman this past week. And it's just always fascinating, right? It's like, so Patrick Collison is like a real technologist. So when he's asking Sam Altman questions about AI, it's infinitely better than any journalist because like Patrick can reason about this stuff because, you know, he like he's an actual computer scientist. Um, so it's this fantastic interview. But but if you kind of just think about like these models, like Sam is talking about synthetic data. And so if you just kind of read between the lines a little bit, that that's like, okay, we ran out of data on the internet for these models to train on. So if you're having to create new data to kind of like create this like reinforcing loop one that, that it seems like that's not proven maybe maybe it is in, in, in the lab at open ai and they just haven't released it yet but if you've run out of data and it's just a game of like you need massive access to these gpu clusters i actually don't think there is any version of this escaping out you know like the the, the chinese have had all of their chip supplies like totally hampered in terms of uh, the U.S. has all these uh, sanctions now rela related specifically to chips, and obviously they can still buy them on the open market. But like, it gets harder and harder to have the best stuff from Nvidia or or whomever is building this stuff. You know, I think Google has some stuff, and then obviously Apple has its own silicon team. But you're you're going to be limited to a set of companies, and those companies are going to then play the optimal strategy around like how do how do we make money from this thing uh, without having necessarily a ton of regulatory oversight and or like play within the existing framework. Now, what's interesting about OpenAI is they're not public. And I do think because they are still founder-led in, in the sense that Sam has very clearly said AGI is the priority, they are going to be a much more interesting one to watch relative to Google or Apple, which have public shareholders and kind of exist in a framework where 
their core businesses are susceptible to other types of regulation if if they're doing something uh, like it, it's the mafia thing. It's like, oh, nice, nice uh, iPhone business or a nice search business. It'd be a shame if we we came in and did something here if you're not kind of following the the kind of guidance that's coming down from what I would call the Borg of of the elite class. So so I, I think OpenAI is the interesting one. I know now, obviously, if Elon has his own, again, private, then then you actually have an, an interesting race because these are people who are only accountable to their investors, which at that point, like I, I just really the founder. Um, so that that's actually the more interesting one. So when I go to, to all these people like worrying about like safety or whatever, the reality is you're just not going to have access to the uh, amount of compute outside of some breakthrough in technology, like, you know, some equivalent of like a transformer or GPT for, for the, you know, the next thing. And it's like it vastly improves the efficiency of how to train these things. But it's, it's basically going to be a game of like open AI with Microsoft providing the data center stuff. I think it'll be, you know, Google has really smart people, but is a public company. And then I think it'll be Elon and then China like that. That's it. Like no, no one else will be relevant. And, and so those are four entities that are, I think, somewhat easy to control. Modulo China can just do whatever it wants. But if if you continue to cut off access to the the chips, then I think China is just going to be significantly behind. Some people might be listening and say, hey, this is the problem with billionaires. It's not that they're too rich. It's that they don't have accountability. It's that, uh, you know, these platforms like Facebook or Twitter or OpenAI are at the whims of these founders who have founder super voting shares. and Shouldn't it be more, shouldn't the public or shouldn't the government step in and there be public accountability? And I think the misnomer is that when those, like, when those things are controlled or influenced by the government, you know, 99% of the government is not elected and is not like, can't be fired. So there's actually like zero accountability. This is what people talk about when they talk about the Borg is they talk about an unaccountable bureaucracy um, that is just there indefinitely and doesn't have to really answer to anybody. And so the, it's either you have like full control or you have like no control. It's either like a dictatorship, uh, either by someone like uh, Elon or someone like Zuckerberg, or there's like, there's, there's no, no one is responsible. And it's just kind of this web of bureaucratic, uh, you know, stultification and sclerosis and, and, and madness. And if you want gridlock, that that's actually a good thing to have. You want, uh, but if you want progress, you want someone who can make decisions but the, the uh, like dictator, but the challenge is that the those the, the progress could go both ways. There's just more variance um, in, in in that progress. But I, I I just wanted to point out that that misnomer that uh, oh Facebook in theory could be a, like publicly accountable in a way that is influenceable by the by the public when when in reality uh, you know most of the government is is neither elected neither voted for nor accountable to to market forces in any capacity. Well, let me let me push back a little bit on the the Facebook one. So first of all, the market held Facebook accountable in the sense that Facebook stock went, you know, it was significant decrease. Everyone was, you know, it's the meme where the guy's like throwing his fingers down in front of the the grave, <laughs> like, oh, Zuck's done. Like, you know, uh, the the Twitterati types just just loving the meta decline. It's like this is over, and now now I think that, you know the stock has doubled, almost tripled. And they have this open source model, like the Llama, Llama model or whatever. And, and it's like, oh, Facebook has legit, like even, even Rune on Twitter is actually talking about how legit Facebook engineering culture is. And so it's like, that was greatly exaggerated in terms of uh, their death. And so, so the market 
punished them and then has now rewarded them based on change. So I, I do think that, that that is a force. Now, obviously, that is weighted by capital, not not individual votes. But the the individual vote metric for, for Facebook is this. Do you know how many daily active users Facebook has across all of its its apps? Two billion? Three billion. <laughs> they just, they've never basically not increased it. Like wow. they just continue to march. So I think there's like four billion smartphones. It's like a Benedict Evans thing. Three billion of those people use a Facebook product every day. Okay. Like not not just like once a month. So so it basically have saturated the entire like world in terms of like you have a smartphone, like you probably use a Facebook product. And um so so that's super interesting in my mind, in that you say, Oh, these aren't aren't accountable. There is no one forcing you to use Facebook. Maybe you can make an argument that in in the kind of um the outside the US, WhatsApp has become the de facto communication system. So that I'm a little bit more sympathetic to like, okay, like make an argument that like this should be a public good. But but here's the reality. When when it goes to this open standard SMS, first all of the telcos are like they they charge that the price per like amount of data that you're sending in SMS that they were charging prior to WhatsApp coming around was like made printer ink look cheap, right? And and so WhatsApp has basically been this amazing public good in my view. And then the thing that they did, which I give the founders credit before they left, is they implemented the double ratchet encryption model from Signal. And so what's interesting about WhatsApp is if you don't have the backups turned on, Facebook doesn't know anything that you're saying. They're basically letting you use this system that is extremely reliable, right? Extremely scalable. And um, like it, there's been a ton of uh, kind of government pressure all over the world. I think Brazil is the, the best example. I think they th they put the the GM of, of WhatsApp Brazil in prison because they wouldn't they wouldn't uh, break the encryption scheme so that they could kind of wh whatever they were trying to do. And so I do think WhatsApp, um, which is their I think their biggest product outside of their core, you know, Facebook product. But like that's an amazing public good in the world. And and like I, I, I it'd be hard pressed to to come up with a reasonable argument that this is not like a massive net benefit to humanity. And granted, they didn't they didn't invent it like they acquired it. But extremely prescient, I think they acquired it in what, 2014 or 2015, like, and at the time, people were like $17 billion, what do you it, versus now that basically like, communication runs on on a Facebook product. And they really haven't, I think, significantly monetized it. So so, but but everyone who uses a Facebook product, for the most part, is voluntarily choosing, especially Facebook and Instagram, like, I think the, the WhatsApp point is, is a little bit more that that's actually become uh, the de facto way most people around the world communicate. But like if if Facebook was so evil and terrible and people didn't like the product, they wouldn't be using it. And and so like a good example also of this is Instagram did this thing where they basically said, hey, we're going to stop showing photos by default. We're going to show you a few and then we're going to show you reels because to respond to TikTok and Kim Kardashian and all this virtue signaling around like, oh, don't change Facebook, like cancel fa or, you know, Instagram or whatever. They just released their quarterly earnings. It's like 24% increase in time spent in Instagram watching reels, right? So it's like, they, they knew that it was going to kind of work. It's just going to take them time. And, and, and realistically, what is that displacing? It's, it's displacing people's time spent watching TV, right? Like, it's just like people were watching TV before and there was like kind of no moral crusade around TV at this point because there's some new fancy thing. But I'm sure if you go back to like the 60s, 70s, 80s, the moral crisis of how many people are watching TV, Americans are watching the boob tube and like 
so so it's a, it, there's always just going to be some complaint around whatever is actually grabbing people's attention. And I think that this is going back to the Elon thing. Attention is the scarcest resource, right? For from a, just like pure consumer standpoint. And that's why advertising is valuable and all this other kind of stuff. And so what the Borg or the elite, you know, whatever you want to call it, call it the cathedral is really frustrated with, and it's like a collective frustration, but, but prior to these technology platforms, which can be owned by kind of a single founder and, 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 you know, they, they can make the decisions for it. It used to be all the institutions that they controlled, right? Not to say that the New York Times isn't controlled by a nepotistic dynasty of people, <laughs> but like, but the whole point is that the attention and, and what was important, like th they had a lot more editorial control over. Whereas obviously the New York Times is important today, but vastly less important in, in my point of view, like in terms of like setting the collective discussion, it is a huge node and arguably more important than it ever was as a single newspaper, because now like all the other small newspapers have gone away and it's really just the New York Times, maybe a little bit the Washington Post. But I think the, just like Facebook is, is accountable to both the public markets and users using it. And if people are voluntarily using a product, 3 billion people are using a, a Facebook product every single day, they're probably doing something right. Unless, unless you want to try to make the argument, this is like cigarettes. That's right? what I was like, going to say. Yeah. yeah. And so, so then yeah. it's just like, okay, so let's say we just ban all Facebook products or all social media products tomorrow. What are people going to do with that extra time? Go on other platforms. Right. right. So, so, so just say we, we delete the app store. We delete the, the internet just like overnight tomorrow. You know, it'd be pretty chaotic. But then you get to the point of like, what are people going to do with their time? They're going to start going to, um, you know, uh, Rotary Club meetings and and like, no, they're going to watch television <laughs> and like you'd have to delete. Tele like, it's just it, it, it it's it's entertainment for people like. Right. And and so I, I think like Facebook gets this this huge thing because of the Trump Cambridge Analytica. People were just lashing out, wanting to blame something. But the reality is like most people are on Facebook because it's entertaining, right? Like Reels is not radicalizing people. Reels is showing you like pickleball clips. If you watched one pickleball clip and you could just watch an infinite number of pickleball clips. Just to steal, man, the, the pushback. So it would be, it would say something like, hey, we have, this is a Jonathan Haidt argument. Uh, you know, we have an increase. Maybe in, explain Jonathan Haidt oh, sure. to those. So yeah, Jonathan Haidt is a professor who has written a couple of great books. Uh, uh, one is The Coddling of the American Mind. And the, uh, which just talks about sort of the rise of kind of activism within universities or more of the, the increase of fragility of, uh, of, of, of college students in being able to, you know, uh, handle uh, sort of opinions they don't agree with. And so starting to use the sort of therapeutic language of you've caused me harm if someone says an opinion you d disagree with. And, and the coddling is that we are not challenging the, those the people who are saying you're causing me harm. We are uh, sort of ingratiating them or, or acquiescing to them. Um, another book he wrote is The Righteous Mind, uh, which is kind of about uh, political psychology of the left and the right and, and why they, um, you know, people are psychologically inclined towards one or the other, which I think has been proven right and wrong in, in some interesting ways. Can you can you summarize the core? Like what 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 is inclining someone to be left leaning versus right leaning according to that book? I, I believe it's that the left is more open open to new ideas, open to open to new people. Uh, you know, one test is if a new group of people comes to you at, at your border um, or your, at your house, are you excited to invite them in, learn from them, you know, uh, et cetera? Or are you much more protective 
and think of them as a threat. Um, and so, yeah, le left are more open, more um, interested in diversity, just like instinctively diversity of all kinds. Um, and the right are more um, sort of interested in protection, interested in, in boundaries, interested in tribes. You know, the left is more uh, universalizing. So trying to espouse its values uh, all over. The right is more, hey, this is my family. Th this is my tribe. This is my people. Um, just kind of more conservative in, in instinct. Uh, anything you'd add to that description? No, I mean, I think it's also we've talked about the the weirdest people in the world book by Joseph Heinrich, but but it's it's very Western is is it's it's kind of left Whig history, you know, this idea of progress and like individualism and, and you know, everything gets turned into an atomic unit, whereas I think the the kind of East uh, and, and this idea of family, the non the non Western culture is is by definition more conservative so you obviously can have um left and right within the western frame but like the idea that like you start from your kind of like tribe that is much more localized i, I do think is is more conservative value and and jonathan Haidt started heterodox academy which is trying to introduce more uh political diversity or intellectual diversity within uh within the academy or within universities some people think that that institution itself has been captured uh and is too you know is too too left-wing but bringing it back to social media one of jonathan's big causes in fact this is the next book and i have a lot of respect for jonathan even though i really disagree with him on this topic is he thinks he blames social media for the the rise in depression um and for the the, the malaise that young people are going through now. He has an interesting post recently where he he admits or concedes that a lot of that depression is um, among liberal people. It's among liberal people. It's a, it's among women, and I think it's it's most common within white women, within white liberal women. Um, but that there are big gaps between one men men and women, two I think on across race, um, and three certainly between liberals and and conservatives. So um, it's worth asking why is. Um, why is the depression not rising for all groups of people? Why is it just rising for, for certain groups of people? Anyways, he, he blames social media. Uh, you know, Tristan Harris has a much more fleshed out uh, version of, of, of this argument, or, or they've worked together to really um, elucidate why, in their view, Facebook, but also just social media in general, is the rise of, uh, it explains the rise of, of depression among uh, young women. And um, he, th he calls for a banning uh, of it, I believe, for, uh, uh, under a certain age group, at the very least. Kids shouldn't do it. Let me let me take the other side of that. So one, I think clinical diagnoses of of whatever ADHD or like it just feels like you um, you have a society where it, like diagnosing things is is just on the on the rise. Um, so there's a little bit of like a you you're you're actually not measuring it the same way that you used to. Like I I have a sense that 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 I've seen enough stuff pop up on Twitter, but. I would love a fact check in the in the comments, so to speak, if, if that is not the case. I think the second thing, let, let me give a concrete example. So I have little kids. Um, I take a lot of photos and videos of, of those kids, uh, or my kids, and um, I share it in a kind of like private group. It's using Apple's like shared photo album, okay, which has like a little like button and the ability to comment, right? But I'm, I'm not putting it out on on Instagram in like a public way. There's not that much different between kind of like Instagram, social media, and this Apple product outside of like, yes, there's this algorithmic feed, which will kind of suck you in for it. There's a little bit more of like uh, easier to get exposed to people who are trying to kind of just show you the perfect version of their life versus the vulnerable part. 
but but so now we're we're kind of like fighting over the details and the implementation. But there is no version uh, of the, in in my opinion where I just now have this magic technology that I can just snap a photo on the other side of the country from my kids' grandparents, and then they can actually feel yeah they're not there. And and obviously we try to see them in person. But but the idea is that they're they're being able to see multiple moments a day of their grandkids growing up and then have the ability to go back and, and watch it. That, that, that's amazing. Right. And so I think w- what, just like anything, you know, uh, man bites dog, like you always focus on the thing that is going to sell from a story standpoint versus being like, Hey, how amazing is FaceTime? Like, why, why don't we have a story every week? Just being like, isn't it kind of insane that you can just be anywhere uh, and just like start talking to someone, a loved one. And it's just like in a high fidelity way on your phone. And, you know, fast forward in, in a couple of years when it's like all these phones just have like satellite internet connections with Starlink. And it's like you literally could be in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and having a conversation with your grandma. And so I, I, I think like and you can you can really try to get semantic and be like, well, FaceTime and, and messaging apps aren't social media versus, you know, Instagram and Facebook are bad. But it's like how many people are actually connecting on Facebook Messenger? How many people are using WhatsApp? Like how many people are using Instagram DMs? Like the stories on Instagram close feed. Like so now, now you're like wanting to really get into be like, okay, this class of features is is actually productive and this class is not. But but going back to my point, what are most people doing on on Instagram? Like most people don't have other people you know, in, in their life that are doing like really fancy things. Who do they follow? They follow an influencer, right? And and in my view, if you get rid of that, let's just say you could like ban that somehow, people are still going to crave that. So they are going to get that in television. They're going to get that in People Magazine. Like there is always going to be some outlet for that because people want to escape, right? Like their life is hard. It's like, you got all this shit going on. There's a nice version of of, you know, just being able to kind of be like, oh, wouldn't it be amazing if I was that person and and not actually having to think through like walking a mile in their shoes and just being like, you know, you look at like a like a Ben Affleck when he's doing something cool. And then half the memes of just like Ben Affleck, like smoking the cigarette being like my life is just like completely relative. Right. So I think that that is the the challenge is like people love to just cite these statistics, but it's like, OK, one is this a measurement issue. And then two, what about the net increase in happiness? Like from just like how much happiness is FaceTime added to the world? Um, and, and and why aren't people measuring that of being like, wow, I'm an older person in a nursing home where I had basically someone come and visit me once or twice a year, but now I'm actually FaceTiming with my grandkids every day or my great grandkids. Just to put a pin on that, you, you think that the depression is either likely a measurement issue or if it does exist, it's not for the fault of Facebook, but the fault of other things, maybe the loss of religion, maybe the deterioration of cultural fabric or you know like what 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 could you attribute it to i am of the like belief that all this stuff these are just tools right and they can be used for good and bad and maybe some are used more for bad than good but i think it is extremely difficult to measure the absence of something right like whereas you can if you if you hone on so like we always said this when we were at Coinbase with compliance, right? Like you don't get credit for for being ninety nine percent. Like you only people care about is that one percent of bad. Like you don't like no one's actually approaching it from. It's the same thing with like nuclear uh, disasters, right? Like we've had nuclear power since the sixties, 
and or you know 50s even and and uh you know you've had basically a handful of these disasters if you actually look into it outside of chernobyl put to the side no one has died from this stuff and you know compared to coal but like it, it sounds scary so you're like oh like a meltdown and so now now we're gonna actually be irrational on that stuff and so I think it's like, oh, uh, mass shooting as a result of this shooter being on social media, like or playing video games, or it's like, well, well, how many, how many people who otherwise would have been extremely depressed have some more meaning in their life because they they're actually getting a little bit more human connection, or they were able to find some weird tribe on a subreddit, or you know, the video games that they're playing actually help them cope with some level of grief. Like it's just they're they're not going to the Wall Street Journal reporter and, and telling them that, right? Like it, it's it's how how do you effectively measure this stuff in society? And so I think people have to just kind of come from an intuitive standpoint is like, I think if you, if you're, if you're finding social media is making you depressed, is it the social media or is it like, were you naturally prone to depression? And if you didn't have social media, like if we wind back, would you have, would you have just been depressed about something else? Right. I'm, I'm going to take the question, the liberals versus conservative question uh, as to why is there more, more depression perhaps, among, or at least reported. And I think there's a number of reasons. One is, I think, um, on the left, they, they more likely acknowledge the existence of depression, um, such that, uh, you know, someone on the right who's feeling the same things might not even call it depression. Um, so that, that's one. Two, I think it's a selection effect where people who are uh, depressed need support. Uh, and, and, and so they're more likely to become left because the left acknowledges, uh, you know, the, the existence of or the importance of, of mental health support. Um, three. This is a, a small effect, meaning it doesn't explain all or most, but I think it explains some. I think in some ways, struggling with mental health implies that you are more uh, worldly or you you care more about the world. Like, I don't, I don't know if you saw White Lotus season two, but there's a there's a left wing couple and there's a right wing couple. And the left wing couple is like, you know, or the, the woman, Audrey Plaza, she's uh, kind of depressed about the state of the world. She doesn't know if she wants to have kids. And the right wing couple is like, what, what are you talking about? And similarly, there's this character Portia, um, who's uh, you know talking to this kind of more right coded person who's uh, you know lower class, um, and she's saying, yeah, it's such a bad world. I don't want to bring my kids. You bring kids into this, or you know, it's it's the worst of times. And he's saying, what are you talking about? It's the best of times. And so the idea that you are, and you know, what, what do people often say? I'm so exhausted having to deal with all this politics stuff, or I'm you know, it's causing me harm, or you know, it's affecting my mental health. Trump is affecting my mental health. I think it implies that you care more about the world uh, if, if you are struggling. Again, I think that only affects a small uh, amount of people, but, but I think that effect is real. I also think, you know, it's sort of the, the therapy meme. Yeah, men will do any, literally anything other than go to, go to therapy is kind of a left-wing meme. I also think that, this is Jonathan Knight's argument, is that excessive leftism has a, a series of views, uh, or not views, uh, kind of approaches to solving problems um, that can cause um, some, some, you know, um, uh, mental health issues like Jonathan names three in his book, but one is instead of attributing, um, you know, sort of responsibility and the ability to work through things, it attributes responsibility of systems and, you know, prejudices and, uh, uh, kind of encourages blame of external factors. That's why you are this way. There, there were two other ones. I'll, I'll, I'll find them and put them in the, in the show notes, but there's like a series of, 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 you know, he says it's the opposite of CBT. What cognitive behavioral therapy encourages is kind of like radical responsibility. Everything's within within my within my control, um, and and that leads you more likely to be able to identify problems. Where if you 
equate the locus of control with society or government or prejudice or whatever, you're less likely to have a approach that says, hey, I can work through this on my own. And then lastly, is that there are certain social structures in society that probably protect against um, depression in, in many cases, like, uh, you know, family and religion and uh, uh, patriotism, even uh, just like having something bigger than yourself, having rituals that have proven over time. And, uh, you know, a sort of the uh, liberals are less likely to find as much security in those in those so, uh, structures because they're less likely to believe in them or are more likely to find fault with, with, with them. So th those are some of my reasons as to why uh, depression might be higher uh, on liberals than conservatives. Yeah, my my if I step back, I just look at it as this is like a first world you know, problem. It's a, a uniquely call it Europe, uh, American, and then maybe to a certain degree European. I actually have less of a point of view on the European side of things, but I think it's just you. You live in you live in the kind of in Rome, and and you have everything, and so your relative set of problems become little problems relative to the real problems of the world, right? Like, and and Antonio is the first one to always be like, go to Israel, go to Ukraine. Like, do you think people are are worried about, you know, X or Y or social media is making me depressed? It's like, no, I like I don't want to get hit by a rocket. Um, and and so I I think the kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs as you get wealthier and more stable and secure and like you don't actually have to worry about a lot of things, you just find new sets of problems. That's, I think, just fundamentally human. And I think an easy way to look at this is look at if you talk to your average Uber driver, who a lot of times is an immigrant, right? Um, you know, where are they from? Egypt, Afghanistan, uh, you know, Haiti. And you ask them what they think of the, this country. They're they just think it's the best. Like, it's like, oh, man, like, you know, moving here from Haiti has just been like a huge life upgrade. And like, it's great. Like, I don't have roving gangs trying to take take my family away or, you know, uh, my money and like I, I can build a life I can educate my kids that's the that's the actual issue is like if I'm sure if you just were to cut it like first generation Americans versus like every other generation American where, where where's the depression and I'm sure it's it's a pretty significant difference and I think you just see that the dynamism of Silicon Valley is so much because there are so many immigrants it's like they they're coming from places where it's like life is actually hard and like, you don't have the luxury of saying, oh, my mental health is low. It's like, you're, you're thinking more about survival. And so when you come to the US, you're simultaneously just like, this is such an amazing country. It's like, I can build something of value and not have it taken away from me. And at the same time, they're kind of looking at these other people and they're like, why are you such like a special snowflake? Like, it's like, go, go, go spend some time actually living in a, in a, in a shitty country. And so I, I, I think it's hard because like, look, I haven't spent significant time outside the US outside of travel, like I haven't lived in other places. And so this is a little bit more of an abstract concept for me. But in terms of, you know, interacting with immigrants on a on a daily basis, like a bunch of folks on my team are, are immigrants to the US, and they seem to, to like it here, they're voluntarily choosing to be in, in this, uh, call it, broken society, or whatever you want to call it, like, and, and, and this is my my argument, which I always bring up with biology, but but you know, I, I love poking this when people are like, oh, the U.S. is in decline or the U.S. dollar reserve currency or whatever. Where are the immigrants moving? Because they're not moving to China. I can tell you that. And, and you know, 
basically there are what two countries in the world that that are like pretty pro-immigrant in the sense or three so it's like U.S., bad policy, but that's where the immigrants want to go. Canada is actually very good at getting immigrants. I think they like they actually beat the U.S. On, in, from a policy standpoint. And the U.K. And then it's like, yeah, you get some immigration to, to Germany and, and to Sweden and whatever. But the, the reality is in terms of like the, the total number, it's, it's, it's the U.S. And most talented people in the world want to move to the U.S. Um, so, so like, why are so many other people depressed? Like when you have all these other people in these hard circumstances wanting to come here. So I, I don't think it's fundamentally a problem with America. I think it's like a problem with like going back to just like your set of circumstances and the, the choices that you're, you're making. But I, I do sympathize with the idea of, well, in America, it's, it's certainly easier to, you know, make a great living and do creative work and have a high standard of living um, and have a great life in so many ways. It's also harder in some ways maybe to have a, you know, committed family or committed partnership or committed religion or some of these social structures that might be easier in, in other countries. And hey, some people, maybe America has higher variance, right? Like we, we do have high depression and high suicide, right? And these people who need a lot of help. And it's, it's while it's easier to, to be successful, it's also easier to be reminded of, of why, you're, why you're not successful. Uh, and it's easy to feel, to feel bad. And it's, it's, it's harder to uh, have some of the attachments that in some other countries uh, have have you know prevented certain pe people from succeeding at the top, but it, like I, you can't leave your family, you can't leave your town, you can't leave your city, whatever you know you have to stay in the same job. But it prevent have created a certain floor, um, and so I, I think yeah, America has a higher variance. Yeah, and I think that's directly correlated to freedom, right? Like you know you have all these BS metrics around like oh the most free countries in the world or whatever written by some like I don't know think tank. But the reality is, I think if like you were to say what country has the most freedom and all of the problems that come along with that freedom, I would I would argue that the U.S. for the scale countries, because I, I always can't stand the like, oh, well, this like small, you know, four million person Scandinavian ethno state like has all this. It's like, come on, like that. That's like s smaller than than L.A. Right. Like in terms of, yeah, you can you can manage a society at a much smaller, you know, size, but a 300 and. 50 million person country, like there, you know, call it 10 countries in the world that are roughly over hundred million people. Maybe, maybe it's 15 now, but like pick, pick one of those countries and, and show me the one that, that is the shining example of, of, uh, um, um, like a multicultural, like a country that's very pro-immigrant assimilation, all that kind of stuff. They don't exist. Right. It's like China, ethno state, like, uh, Japan, ethno state, <laughs> like, like the, the, these, you know, Germany is probably like the best. I don't think that there are over 100 million people like in terms of, um, you know, integrating different immigrant groups. I mean, the UK also pretty decent, but I think Germany obviously is a, is a more successful economy, although they shut down all their nuclear plants. <laughs> I just still think it's crazy. Well, actually, first, I just want to read this quick Fukuyama quote that talks about sort of the first world struggle. The quote goes, experience suggests that if men cannot struggle on behalf of a just cause because that just cause was victorious in an earlier generation, then they will struggle against the just cause. They will struggle for the sake of struggle. They will struggle, in other words, out of a certain boredom, for they cannot imagine living in a world without struggle. And if the greater part of the world in which they live is characterized by peaceful and prosperous liberal democracy, then they will struggle against that peace and prosperity and against democracy, which is kind of an interesting point to your first world problem. Well, I mean, but but that, to me, that makes a ton of sense. And, and, and so, you know, just already thinking of the people who complain about this frame, but like testosterone, male, 
you are going out and hunting versus female, you know, at the camp, the kind of like the delineation there, just like a pure biology standpoint. Now, you know, go cancel me. But in that sense, it's like, so you, you, you get everything stable and peaceful, that testosterone, where is that going to be exhibited? I don't know. Like, and the more you suppress it and the more plastics that lowers it totally, I think you're going to get uh, a whole bunch of problems in that. Right. And, and so it's like the, the less physical the world becomes, which I actually think is the trend. Um, you're going to have challenges with that for, for men. Right. Because my, my belief very much goes with, if you take the, the you know distribution of men versus women, you have more women who actually meet in kind of like the middle of the curve. And I think men tend to be more bimodal. So you, you have a lot of, you know, kind of outlier men on both sides relative to the distribution for women. And I don't know if that's been scientifically disproven, but, but that's my kind of frame for the world. And so as a result, like stable world for men, and we talked about this in the dating episode or whatever, it like really, really tough, difficult for, for the group of men that, um, maybe don't have the, the kind of like call it white collar knowledge worker skill set. And like instead that they are more physically oriented and there is really no outlet for them in, in, in 2023. Yeah. Although with AI, who knows how, how long the white collar, uh, sure. No, no, no. I mean, there's a lot of weird, weird stuff that will come with that, but I think, um, I, I think it's a fundamental problem in our society and, and I don't know how you change it because I think the more educated you get, it plays to the people who are good at knowledge work, which is more women are going to beat men at that because they, they, you know, the, uh, the the low group of men in terms of like who, who are more physical and don't have the skills that that it's that's that's a really challenging thing and so i think we should we should you know try to think of ways to actually increase uh productive physical outlets for men in society is is my point of view and in some ways the, the military used to used to be that for many men right Sure. Or, or, or working in, you know, a factory that is like very physical, like it, 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 you know, those jobs are fewer and fewer. Right. But, but although hopefully maybe there'll be more, you know, with sort of, if what Zaihan predicts hap happens in terms of the, you know, sort of, you know, rebuilding of the, uh, you know, industrial sector within the U S cause we retreat, maybe we'll have rise in manufacturing, et cetera. I don't know. I think, I think what's going to be weird is it, the AI is going to come for the knowledge workers first who, you know, haven't had a lot of job displacement. So that will be weird. Then the robots will actually work, right? Like Tesla's robot. And then and then you're going to see the full impact. And I think it's really hard to model how people shift with that, right? I, I, I tend to be in the Mark and Dreesen camp of human desires are infinite. <laughs> so we will find new things for people to do. But I mean, if you can predict what how that will play out, obviously you can make a lot of money in terms of being an investor or being an entrepreneur, building something. And the question is, will they have infinite needs that require kind of manual labor or require some of the, you know, skills that this group of men have because they maybe don't have the EQ or IQ? I'm, I'm not sure. I think the one thing that will be, um, to go full circle on this whole conversation, the one thing that will be scarce is attention and status. So if you, if you think social media influencers are bad now, wait until everyone like has most of the the core jobs uh, AI assisted or, or reduced in terms of, so we have more time to spend on leisure. And I can almost promise you that that will accrue more status and attention to 
the power law of of people who are and and maybe there will be ais who they'll be all ai too yeah yeah, yeah. i mean it'll just be it'll be weird but but fundamentally the the currency will be you're you're a human and you have x amount of hours per day that you're awake where where is your attention being placed i I want to segue into a topic that relates to topics we've been discussing and it's 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 prison the the prison problem so we we have a massive prison problem The, the biggest problem of course is that there's a diversity problem. It's only men who go to prison, and we need 50-50 across. I'm just joking about about that problem. Uh, but the uh, the problem is that we're sending too many people to prison for reasons that some of whom for reasons that they shouldn't be in prison, like marijuana thing or something, and it destroys families. You know, single parent households, et cetera, which destroys communities, which leads to more crime. At the same time, we also have huge crime problem, a huge homicide problem, a huge crime problem across the boards, particularly in certain inner cities. And so and these are, you know, directly uh, in tension with each other. And so there's a simple answer, which is to say, hey, don't lock people up for stupid reasons and lock people up for genuine reasons. But then there are also kind of more extreme answers on both sides. One, one group of people says, hey, we should abolish prisons or drastically cut them down and instead invest in mental health and redistributive justice. And then there's the other side, and it's emboldened by the, uh, who's it, the El Salvador president? I, I, how do you pronounce his name? Uh, Bukele or whatever. I actually don't know how to say it. Who, who just who took a much more extreme stance and is locking up anyone who's been part of a gang, and not just locking up, but like I think in some cases doing death penalty, and he's he's just really sending a message that anyone who's a part of gang activity is going to be, um, you know, have their life ruined basically. And he and he tweeted the other day that ho- he says homicide has like gone down to zero or something. Like he, he tweeted that there's. And they had a massive gang problem. He, he equated it to denazification in Germany. He's like, when, when you have a Nazi problem, you need to do anything in your power to get rid of it. And so he's doing that on the extreme side. And so, and, you know, and there's something that's attractive about that. Like, oh, we can end crime. That's really interesting. Like, you just by sending it, by just actually like, you know, stick approach. Uh, but then there's also a, a message, you know, the other group says, hey, that's not going to work uh, it, it, or it doesn't work. And in fact, redistributive justice works because, you know, people have souls and they acknowledge that they've made mistakes and these are mental health issues. There are reasons why they're doing the crime. Um, and those reasons are that they've been wronged in some way. Um, and so I'm, these are directly opposed perspectives. And I'm curious if you have a, if you have a reaction to it. Let's, let's do El Salvador first. Let me, let me start with like, I'm not pro-crime. I <laughs> yes. think if you like you commit crime, you should, you should face penalties. But let's let's kind of split them. So so El Salvador, do you think El Salvador uh, has cleaned up their crime process with what we would call due process? Uh, you know, kind of basic. Yeah. So so you have an elected president who is taking a um, kind of extrajudicial approach to reducing crime. Effective, but there are downsides to that How, do, do you do you actually think that like they all got put in prison and they're just sitting in prison or do you think there are a bunch of people who, who were executed and thrown in ditches and yes yeah yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. So, so yeah there's okay. cost yeah significant cost and they're, and they're so, violating human rights i would say right yeah. and and so under the principle of if the opposite side of your political set of beliefs is now in charge and they get to have the same set of tactics do you want to have those tactics so from my point of view, separate, like, it's probably good for El Salvador from a, like, you've actually redu- significantly reduced, which is a country that was essentially in a, you know, narco tyranny, like, a, of, like, just gangs, 
I mean, that was why you had all these these caravans coming up from El Salvador. Um, and, and it's been that way for, I don't know, 20 years at least. Like uh, people from El Salvador actually have something um, called TPS in the U.S. Um, I'm always interested to see like when you talk to someone who has strong beliefs about immigration and then they like don't necessarily know all the details of like, okay, the different countries and, and how, do, how do you treat people, right? So TPS is it's temporary protective status. So if you're from El Salvador and you make it to the U.S., you can actually stay. And that's not a sanctuary city thing. That's a federal government program that they continue to extend. And the reason they had that from El Salvador is that the country was run by MS-13 and, and all this other kind of stuff. So getting the gang problem solved, uh, I think, is a critical priority. In a country where you have um, ineffective institutions, that probably the only practical way to solve it is through an extrajudicial strong strong arm, aka, uh, you know, executing people and, and being really, really aggressive. So that's probably for, for that country's strategy of like trying to do that. That's probably one of the only ways to effectively do that. That said, we, we have the ability to kind of live in a society where we have extremely uh, strong institutions, not necessarily effective, but that we, you know, 200 plus years of, of a constitution, like we, you know, made it through a civil war and we're able to come back together. So, so there's a, there's some, some staying power to, to U.S. institutions, especially our, our rule of law, assuming we, we kind of follow it. So I don't think that the, the uh, El Salvador approach should even like, there's no realistic version of that ever being done in the U.S. Now, um, could you look at the, the crime problem in the U.S. and say, how do we get more aggressive on this? Um, yes, but I actually think like, so, so separate like cannabis or, you know, marijuana related offenses, which I think that's all been decarcerated at this point, like at least in the, the progressive States and even in the States, like a, you know, really conservative state, like I think Mississippi passed a law that like medical marijuana is not like, so, so that is actually becoming less and less, um, of a, of a kind of crime issue, but let, let, let's get into like two categories. So violent crime and, um, fentanyl. So does anyone think like you're casually, and we talked about this with Michelle, like if you're dealing fentanyl, is this like, oops, oh, sorry, I didn't know. Like it, 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 that there is no version of the world where you can make a good argument that that it is a deadly substance, right? Like you're, you're talking about like a little grain of sand amount and it kills the person. Absolutely no tolerance for that. Like that, that should just be a collective society of, of like, you cannot deal fentanyl, Okay. So that that's one. And, and there are a bunch of people who, who disagree with that because they're like, oh, well, economic injustice is the reason they're de uh, dealing this deadly thing. Right. So so what would be interesting is like, OK, well, let's say uh, cyanide didn't kill. It only killed 50 percent of people and someone's dealing cyanide on the street. Does that same person think that? The, so so now you're getting into this kind of like weird argument, like where it's like you, you you're normalizing certain deadly substances and then others because. Like that's just, it's, it's happening. Like it's not logical in terms of the, the argument. Okay. Violent crime. So, so what happens if, if, um, you, you, you shoot someone, did you go to jail? Is it, is it like a, is it like a race-based thing? So it's like, if you're one race, like, and you shoot someone, you should go to jail and you, or if you shoot someone of a different race, you should, like, so it's like a, like a little matrix of like, oh, well, if you're this type of person, it was because of you know, your set of circumstances. So the, the shooting of a person is, is not as bad, but so, but so like, it's just like assault and battery or assault and battery is actually an interesting one because obviously they're, they're different degrees, but like, like, let's just take like gun violence 
and um rape and like things that are just like okay do you do you do you think that there's a like some version of this where oh we should let these people out on bail and 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 who's the um who's this new I, i've tried to avoid this because it's just like i don't want it this culture war issue but i but i ended up seeing i think you know an article or two this marine in new york how many times had the the guy that he choke held and killed been arrested a couple times or something? 44 times. What? <laughs> oh my God. Right. So, so, so we as a society need to figure that out. It's like, oh, well, we need better mental health thing. Did, did the mental health, like, if, if he had gotten a little bit more, do you think he would have been, oh, maybe he would have only been arrested 22 times? Like, I, so, so that, that I think is the fundamental issue is like people want, a mood affiliation of how the world should be versus like how the, how the world actually is. And I, and I think like the other challenge, and, and I think that there was a chart actually this week on, on Twitter about this, whereas the percentage of, or the number of people in mental institutions or, you know, asylums and, and then the number of people in prison. So you reduce the number of people that are in these kind of like effectively mental health prisons. Uh, and then you just put them in the regular prison population. So, so we, we, we've effectively done that. Um, where instead of actually being in something that is, uh, I don't even know the the right terminology here, but like I, I view prison as um, kind of like a negative versus a mental health institution as le- at least like it, maybe there's a path to getting out based on based on uh, your performance. I, I, I guess you have that with prison with pardon, but but like the idea that like you get you serve a prison term, whereas with with the mental health like based on your just how you are, like maybe maybe you can be re-released back into the, the regular society. I want to double click on that because I used to actually be a, a very sympathetic to this view, which is, you know, I got really into nonviolent communication uh, like a decade ago. And nonviolent communication is a communication framework for people to get in less conflicts, like conflict resolution. But it's also a broader worldview that says that the, among other things, it says that the reason why people commit violence, whether it's emotional or physical, is because they have some uh, need that is not being met. Uh, it's because they have some, some challenge in their own life. And there's some, some truth to that, but it's also like implicit in that worldview in this broader therapeutic worldview. It's kind of this very Christian idea. It's that everyone can be saved. If everyone just has the right amount of mental health or the right amount of people listening to them, the right amount of support, then they won't commit that act of violence. And that's the reason why they, why they committed that act of violence. And it, it, implicit in that also is this kind of worldview around the state of nature, which is that people in, um, you know, in default are kind and collaborative and society does something to them, which makes them violent as opposed to the more like, that's like more Rousseau, you know, state of nature as opposed to the more Hobbesian state of nature where, you know, people are killing and, you know, attacking each other and it's civilization or society that civilizes them, that get, that gets them out of that. And if, if you think that everyone can be saved, well, then of course you're going to, uh, you know, want redistributive justice. But if you think that, hey, they're actually just like, that one, the state of nature is, you know, killing and attacking, and that's like hardwired into us to 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 be able to do acts like that. And, um, and also that there's just a certain amount of sociopaths out there, uh, people who can't be saved, people who uh, then you're going to be more focused on how do you protect the rest of society from those people, and and is like is locking those people. Another question is like is locking those people in a cage or you know putting them in prison for for life, like is that more humane than just killing them, <laughs> or is that better for society than? This is a death penalty question. Yeah, a lot of thorny, uh, thorny questions, but it really depends on kind of your your worldview on the savability of, of of humans 
and the, and the reasons why, why they do it in the first place. My my sense on this one is it's a classic where if it's actually close to you, you can give me all the reasons why the, that family member in your family is you can't save them or like they're self-destructive and like all these things. And you've spent a ton of time personally and you still don't do it. And when you rationalize like, hey, I'm just not going to engage with them anymore because it's it, it's it's a futile effort. Yet then you take the policy approach of like, oh, well, if we just put a little bit more mental health into the world, like all, all of these problems will go away. Like, so it's it's a little bit of like, you know, the stated preferences for the politics, but the revealed preferences when you actually have a, a difficult family member or someone close in your life. And like, you just, you know, it, it's it's extremely difficult. Humans are are messy and very flawed. I, I think like, just think about like all the types of problems that you have just like people you know, right? And, and I think we've had long discussions about this of like, you might have a close friend with a, a serious problem. like. Is, is the expectation for you as the as the person to to because they're your friend or family member, it's like you're just going to do that for the rest of your life is is you you are their support network. And anytime, you know, they are going through whatever the problem they have is you 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 have to kind of just smile and, and, you know, try to be supportive. And and you can make the argument, OK, like maybe it's a relative thing. So it's, if it's a child, like you have this kind of near infinite capacity for for doing that versus if it's a sibling maybe a little less or you know a parent you you do more and if it's a friend it, it depends how close they are right but but i think like it, if you just take the approach of like i would imagine nearly anyone listening to this has someone in their life where they just have this problem that um as much effort as you want to push on that it it's not going to fix and so then if you just take that as a one data point and then you just extrapolate over 8 billion people, like obviously there's going to be a lot of people in the world where they're going to have some flaw that no matter how much human effort you put in, it is not going to change. And then so we as a society need to collectively say, these are the, these are the flaws that we have no tolerance for because it, it actually breaks down society. And these are the flaws that we're willing to kind of deal with, right? Yeah. And and because I've come to the view that most people probably can't be saved to some degree, some can, but like, you know, um, you know, people who commit crimes are likely going to, you know, commit crimes, then I think you have to come to the question as to like, who are you going to protect the people, that, the person that committed the crime, which has, you know, real impact if you send them to prison on their family and other loved ones and obviously on them, or the, the, the person who the crime got committed against the, the victim of, of the crime. And, you know, I'm still evolving on this issue and still learning, et cetera. But I, I do have to confess that like places like Singapore that have really stringent um, restrictions on certain certain issues that seem to have less of those crimes as a result. And I know Singapore is very different in the US in a bunch of different ways, but it does feel like the harder you are, if you do it in smarter ways, it will avert some sense of some sense of crime. And I do think that um, the people that are affected most by crime are the people that can't protect themselves. It's people who can't afford to live in gated communities, people who, can't who have, uh, live in cities that have the least amount of you know, a budget for police, et cetera. And so- But, okay, so two things. So, so Singapore, they executed all their drug dealers. They still execute drug dealers. So like, you know, the Michelle Tandler, we should hang fentanyl dealers. Like they do that in Singapore. So <laughs> five, five million people, you know, this little city state that is, you know, extraordinary in, in a lot of different ways, but they, they execute their drug dealers, right? Um, so- data point. How was how this problem solved prior to kind of call it um, post-American, you know, 
post-war 20th century America, like where, you know, the, the, the federal government really starts to, to flex its muscle in, in the pre-World uh, War II times? You're a poor Italian immigrant. Who's protecting you? Is it the Irish cop in New York? No. It's it's the mafia. It's it's you pay for protection, and then no one messes with Italian people in little little Italy or whatever. Because if if some other group comes in and messes with the tribe, they're gonna get firebombed and and you know whatever with with and it's just like okay, go back farther. Like, that's that's the feudal system. The feudal system is literally you trade work, and I'm not I'm not arguing for that. I'm just pointing out it's like this is how society works. I give you protection, right? Like that that's that's the that's the deal, and and so. In a world where we can't collectively decide with without wanting, you know, a feudal system or mafia or whatever, that um, we're going to have a base level of protection to protect those who are law abiding but weaker and don't have as many resources, you, you have serious breakdowns of society, right? Like, and, and this is Antonio's point is you turn it to Brazil, right? Like you, the favelas in, in Rio are, are run by gangs, which mafias, and, and they can do whatever crime they want but the reality is they get to decide what kind of crime happens and then if you're wealthy you live behind a gated community I and mean, it's the same thing in mexico so it's like it, it 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 whether or not your mood affiliation on this is how it should be like the reality of how this will will translate is we will move if the the state is not providing it it will move to models where you're you're basically under the the de facto safety prov provisions from gangs and th they tend to be a lot more extractive so yeah it's fascinating to look at different sort of solutions to these problems do you have one besides the status quo that you think might be better or is it just all bad options in their own ways and hard to, you don't have a point of view on it it's interesting because like i i i don't have much time to think about this stuff in the sense that like i i think what michelle brought up on on the podcast of like just get housing as a standard thing for getting people off the streets I think it's like, I, I, I think this is iterative, right? It's like, let, let, let's try that experiment, right? Like, let's get 10,000 or, I mean, maybe it needs to be 20,000 in San Francisco now, but like, let, let's use San Francisco as a microcosm. Let's just get 20,000 beds. Like, you know, ignore the, the NIMBYs or the local political thing, just like steamroll that, build it, build it in, um, the, what's the neighborhood? Not, not Bayview, but it's between like Bayview and, and uh, Dogpatch. Like, there's just like a bunch of warehouses, like, like, just just eminent domain boom like we're gonna build the the every night we're gonna sweep all of the homeless people off the street and force them to sleep in here so that there's no ten encampments or whatever so let let's see what happens at that point and then and then from there it's like let let's iterate and then the second the second thing that again downstream or upstream of a lot of the the issues in my view around kind of like whether you want to call it poverty economic injustice that creates crime homelessness is housing just generally is too expensive. So like, let's, let's build more housing, right? Reduce the, the overhead to actually get more housing. Like let's get more companies like cover the, our friend Delian invested in this, you know, kind of company that is building, I think they're based here in LA, building homes in a factory. Like trailer parks got the kind of normalizes this like bad thing. But the reality is, is that's like mass produced housing that, like we we should be more more aggressive about like you know building building more housing and and kind of saying hey the way it works is um you know you can't you we're not allowing you to be homeless like we're going to move you to so some state level 
property that we bought a huge chunk of land or we did eminent domain and, and we're going to put you in this park and there are going to be mental health services here, but you are not allowed to be on the street in, in LA, right? Like, or, or San Francisco. And so I think like that is the, the stuff that I would love to see society being more aggressive about. And, and if you, if you reduce the amount of money people have to pay on housing, they have more money to spend on whatever they need, food, uh, the other parts of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But I think shelter being an issue because we don't build anything and California has this insane property tax regime. Like we, we, we just collectively as a society need to get past that and, and, and figure it out. So, but it's a classic incentives problem. Whereas now if I'm in California and I've had to pay the, the, you know, 1% of the new price versus the person who's old every year it goes by that I own my house. I don't, I, I'm now benefiting from, from this and, and I'm becoming an older person who now wants to continue this policy. But I think if you had like a really good reformer uh, in California that kind of was smart about it, it's like, okay, hey, we're going to we're going to basically allow it for single family. We're going to get rid of it for commercial that that got voted down from a prop standpoint, which is insane in my view. Like we should not be giving commercial real estate uh, developers in California, even above like a five million dollar threshold to ignore the small businesses like they shouldn't be getting prop 13. Like they should be paying full taxes like we should be getting all of that value back to the state and not to say that the state is spending the money well, but like we, we should be solving those problems. Um, and it just, you know, instead we're, we're doing committees in California about reparations for a state that never had slavery and no one in the state of California has ever owned a slave. Like what? Like, I, like, like I, this it makes no sense. It's like, if you're, if you're an immigrant from, uh, Asia, and you've moved to, to California and you've worked your ass off to, to have whatever. And now the state is saying, oh, by the way, you coming from some really hard circumstance and, and you've kind of done everything in your life right and you've paid taxes and you've done all this stuff. By the way, you need to go pay um, reparations for something that happened, uh, you know, 150 plus years ago. And uh, we, the state didn't even have any slaves. It's just so stupid. Like the, 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 it's like housing is the problem. Solve housing. I, uh, I think that's a good place to to wrap. Um, a couple of disclaimers before we do. And this is a fascinating discussion. You know, in some places we uh, you know went a bit abstract, which is cool. But I, I do want to acknowledge that there are uh, you know many people who are deeply struggling, and their uh, their depression or mental health issues are are totally valid. Um, and I also want to shout out you know there are many people uh, whether it's you know mental health professionals or uh, social workers or. Uh, whoever you know, whoever we're trying to save people, and I think that work is admirable, honorable, and, and worth doing. And then also, uh, you know, there are people like policemen and others who are keeping our community safe, and and uh, you know, so many people who are doing great work in these areas. Um, speaking of people who can't be saved, uh, our friend Antonio, uh, you know, uh, moves every month, and if you want to see him here more often, you know, he's Jewish now, so uh, he's susceptible to guilt. Just guilt him constantly. Get in his DMs, ask him why he's not an MOZ. If you want to see uh, Catherine or Solana or dear friends as as more you know uh, regular occurring guests, do DM them. Let let them know as well. And uh, yeah, Dan, thanks as always. It's been a fantastic conversation. Yeah, let me let me add on the mental health. Depression does exist, right? Like I'm not I'm not living in some fantasy world than that. I think it's um, I think there's the macro picture of like society is more depressed is where I'm taking issue with versus individual circumstances, obviously are individual, right? So like, there are definitely people out there in the world who are dealing with some brutal shit. Okay. 
Um, but I think that we can separate the, like your personal circumstance is different from a macro trend, right? In, 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 at least from my point of view, in terms of like, if we're arguing, I am not trying to say that you are not depressed. What I'm trying to say is, are people more depressed? Totally. And also lots of conservatives struggle too, and they don't call it depression, you know, the opioid crisis, et cetera. Also, but, but, but not to, but while we're on this topic, you know, I had a very close friend in college who uh, struggled with depression so much that it, it um, ended her, her life. And her parents have started a foundation. It's called the Jordan Elizabeth Harris Foundation. Um, and, uh, you know, they do suicide prevention work. And I, I've, I've donated there and they do a lot of tremendous work. Anyways, there's so many people doing tremendous work. So, you know, I, I don't want our views to be straw manned or, you know, in, in that kind of way. So I appreciate the, the disclaimers. Yeah, yeah, look, I, I think the reality is people are going to try to dunk or clip or say whatever, but like at least if it's at the back of the thing that you can kind of snap, uh, clap back in a, in a downside scenario. I don't think most of the, our haters actually listen to this podcast. No, no. If, I, if you're I, a hate listener of this podcast, <laughs> leave it leave it in the comments. Yeah, do do let us know. So, we have a lot of, uh, you know, people who want to meet up. Someone suggested a New York City meetup. Uh, I know you're heads down building Farcaster and your family. Uh, but maybe at some point in LA or something in the future, if it's uh, if it's easy. But uh, yeah, I, I want to help moment Zen people meet each other at some point. Yeah, I think we could we could do that. I I, I will actually leave one uh, little thing here as an experiment. If you send me a DM with the word Arizona and you mention MOZ, uh, so just you know MOZ in the in the DM, including the word Arizona because that's how I filter it. Um, I'd just be curious, like if you're interested in checking out Farcaster. I've actually had a lot of you reach out, um, which is cool. But yeah, I think uh, you might find other MOZ fans on Farcaster and or um, just people who are kind of interesting and quirky. And it's a, it's a different time. It's back to a different time of how social media, it was actually more social networking. And I think what's been cool about Farcaster, at least in this early stage, right, there's about 10,000 people using it, um, is people are building meaningful relationships with other people around the world online, not knowing each other, not having met each other in person. And then they meet up in person. So uh, I would I would just give that plug and and feel free to send me a Twitter DM. And, and let me just quickly double up on that because, or just plus one, that Farcaster is where I get the best perspective on what we should do with Moment of Zen or meet the most interesting people. And, you know, Twitter is like a late stage social network. It's harder to meet people. It's harder to rise up, kind of build a reputation on, on the site. But I've kind of seen a number of really interesting people on, on Farcaster who've kind of grown their uh, audience or network or relationships on, on Farcaster. And that, that's sort of the benefit of, of early stage social networks. And I want to do a, a deep dive on Farcaster at some point soon. Uh, maybe we'll do a town hall or AMA or Q&A or, or something. Just like get a, someone tweeted asking for like, hey, want to know more about Farcaster's evolution. And so one, I appreciate the Farcaster community for all they've contributed to Moment of Zen. If you're not a Farcaster, I recommend you getting on. And uh, let's, let's do a future episode where we, where we do a deep dive on, on where you're going. I could do a show podcast. I mean, Antonio is <laughs> usually the one who's doing the show, but uh, exactly. I I, uh, I can flip on the sales mode anytime you need me to. Perfect. Um, awesome. Dan, well, thanks as always. Good to see you, bud. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. And it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. Hiring is hard, and the time it takes for founders could be better leveraged elsewhere. Marketer Hire pre-vets top-notch marketers across a dozen roles. Whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, 
lifecycle content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy. It's free to use and you only pay if you end up hiring someone. If you want to hire a great marketer the easy way, Marketer Hire is offering Moment of Zen listeners a $1,000 credit for first-time customers. Go to marketerhire.com slash MOZ and use code MOZ for your $1,000 credit. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.